Welcome to Disputes Digest for the week of June 13th, 2022. I'm Chris Campbell. Don't forget to follow Tales of the Tribunal on LinkedIn to stay up to date with news from around the international dispute resolution field. We have several stories to bring to you this week. First, we'll talk about a UK court ruling on blockchain disputes in the country. Then, we'll also talk about a ruling from the Hong Kong High Court on tiered dispute resolution clauses. From there, we'll stay in Hong Kong, where we'll discuss HKIAC's change in leadership with Sarah Grimmer heading out for new opportunities and who her replacement will be. And finally, we will discuss a groundbreaking case out of SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, on Section 1782, which will impact discovery and document production in the international arbitration space. We even have a special correspondent that will be joining us for that discussion. But before we get into stories today, if you haven't already, take a moment and please share the show with a friend or colleague. And if you've got any feedback for the show, drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. Finally, you already know the drill. Please don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps others find the show. Now let's get to the news. As we said at the top of the show, we begin this week in the UK, where there has been a huge development for the cryptocurrency community and its advocates of blockchain arbitration, with the rendering of a recent judgment by the High Court of Justice in England. The judgment addressed several procedural applications focusing on issues relating to fiduciary duty and liability associated with its breach. With this decision, blockchain users will now have an insight into the application of English law to the digital economy. The case is called Tulip Trading Limited versus Bitcoin Association and others and concerned an alleged hack of security breach preventing Tulip Trading CEO from accessing over a million dollars worth of digital currency assets that were held within two different networks. Tulip Trading alleged that the network and its core developers had failed to uphold their end of the bargain and therefore breached their fiduciary duty as it relates to security breaches which led to the counter effects of a data hack. It was further stated by the claimant that the system logs had been erased along with the encrypted files storing his private keys. Writing for the court, Mrs. Justice Falk considered the allegations of breach of fiduciary and tortious duties and found that the defendant owed no such duties to the claimant. Furthermore, it is interesting to note that despite the rejection of the claim, the reasoning provided by the court is noteworthy. Ms. Justice Falk was satisfied that there was a serious issue to be tried since the hack did, in fact, occur and there was a good, arguable case. It was held that fiduciary duty existed on behalf of the defendant, but not specifically to the claimant. Rather, it owes the duty to all owners of digital assets recorded on the network. So a duty existed, but not necessarily to any given claimant and certainly not the claimants that have brought this case. With regard to a tortious duty, the court held that the claimant made no allegation to an extent that the alleged hack was conducted by the defendant. Bearing this in mind, the loss was held to be purely economic and could not see a basis to depart from the general rule that the law imposes no duty of care to prevent third parties causing loss or damage. The impact of this decision will be reflected through an increased favoritism for England as an applicable law in tech disputes. Further, this decision also validated the importance of the effort made by the UK Crypto Assets Task Force through reports, statements, analysis concerning the use of digital assets. 
From there, let's head to Hong Kong, where the Hong Kong Court of Appeals rendered a judgment resolving an issue regarding escalation clauses within a multi-tiered contract, which requires negotiation or mediation before either party can begin formal arbitration proceedings. The finding of the court was that any dispute concerning escalation procedures should generally be resolved by arbitrators chosen by the parties and not by the courts. Further, the court held that the decision made by the tribunal should be final and binding, which cannot be used as a ground for challenging the final award, save except exceptional circumstances. The background of the case concerned a contract which stipulated that in the event a dispute arose between the parties to the contract, an attempt should be made to resolve such disputes by negotiation. Further, the contract stated that either party may, by written notice to the other, have such disputes referred to the CEOs of the parties for resolution in an event that the dispute is not amicably resolved within 60 business days from a quest they could then refer the matter to arbitration. The decision in this case by the Hong Kong Court of Appeals reflects a growing trend in international arbitration practice to minimize judicial interference by categorizing disputes regarding preconditioned to arbitration as matters of admissibility rather than jurisdiction. This issue has been addressed by other national courts in the past and continues to adapt further development regarding multi-tier clauses and their escalation. With this judgment added to the archive of decisions supporting escalation procedures, this ultimately provides parties to the dispute a clear roadmap of how contracts are to be enforced, with the achievable nature being a quick, efficient, and private adjudication of their dispute by the arbitrators of their choice. This judgment will attract more disputants to use the arbitration mechanics for resolution of their disputes when they are provided with surety of minimal judicial intervention. Then let's stay in Hong Kong as there is news out of the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center. After six years as Secretary General of the HKIAC, Sarah Grimmer will step down and will be succeeded by Dr. Mariel Dimsey, currently partner at CMS Hong Kong and co-head of the CMS International Arbitration Group. Dr. Dimsey, who was admitted in Australia and Hong Kong, started her career in Frankfurt and worked in leading international firms in Germany before moving to Hong Kong and joining CMS in 2018. During Grimmer's tenure, HKIC was ranked as the third most preferred arbitral institution in the 2021 Queen Mary University of London Whiten Case and International Arbitration Survey. She oversaw the launch of the HKIC Digest, a database of HKIC procedural decisions. Eric Ning, the current HKIC Managing Counsel, will replace Joe Liu as Deputy Secretary General. Prior to joining the Hong Kong Bar, Ng worked as a project supervisor and marketing manager for technology projects in the USA and Asia Pacific. Liu played a key role in developing HKIC's award-winning model clause and drafting the 2013 and 2018 HKIC Administered Arbitration Rules. Of her departure, Grimmer said, it has been an absolute privilege and pleasure to head HKIC over the past six years, and I have had the good fortune of working with a very talented team and being supported by HKIC's eminent counsel and standing committee members and the wonderful Hong Kong legal community. As I hand the baton to Mariel, I have no doubt the institution will go from strength to strength. This is an interesting development and we're looking forward to seeing what comes out of the HKIC next. Congrats to the HKIC team and best of luck to Sarah as she heads forward. And you'll recall that Sarah Grimmer actually appeared on the show back in season one of Tales of the Tribunal. Finally, for this week, let's talk about a case that has been closely watched and monitored 
both in the United States and abroad. I'm talking about, of course, Section 1782 discovery, its applicability and or its access to foreign tribunals. Without going into a deep recap of the underlying cases, I brought on a guest to help with give some insights to this topic. Dan McGrath is the president of Arbitral Women, an independent arbitrator, and has worked in international arbitration both in the U.S. and abroad for a number of years. Welcome to the show, Dana. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Great. And I understand you're actually joining us from, is that a conference? Yes, I'm actually in Austin, Texas for the ITA conference. Ah, well, that's fantastic. And so, well, look, we don't want to keep you from uh, all the, the fun festivities at the conference. Um, what we did want to talk with you about is, well, the buzz of the international arbitration world and town this week, and that is this blockbuster decision, this uh, clarity out of the Supreme Court dealing with this issue of 1782. Now, I know that people that are in the know that have been following this closely will know what that means, but uh, let's take a step back. What is 1782? So 1782 is the federal statute. It's 28 U.S.C. 1782 is the federal statute that allows a court to provide discovery assistance to parties in foreign or international tribunals. And so I was going to say, so then, all right, that's a definition of what 1782 is. And let's just continue along with the basics. Um, What should listeners, um, you know, they can read the brief, but What is a simple summary of the issue that's before the court? Sure. So typically 1782 is used for um, judicial proceedings outside of the U.S. and and other kinds of sort of adjudicatory proceedings. Um, And the issue before the Supreme Court in the recent case, it was actually uh, the opinion was handed down on June 13, 2022. Um, the ZF Automated U.S. case versus um, LuxShare. The issue in that case focused on arbitration and specifically whether private, foreign, or international arbitrations fell within the statutory language of Section 1782. And courts had been all over the map on this. And so there was a real need for clarity from the Supreme Court on what kinds of proceedings outside of the U.S. fell within the statutory language of Section 1782. Okay, and well, that naturally tees up the question, what did the court end up ruling? So the court actually ruled unanimously Um, The opinion was delivered by Justice Barrett, who was recently appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court by former President Trump. And the court unanimously held that only governmental or intergovernmental adjudicatory bodies constitute a, quote, foreign or international tribunal, close quote, under Section 1782. And that's the key phrase that the court was interpreting and all the lower courts had been interpreting in various ways, um, teeing up this decision. And so in deciding that only governmental or intergovernmental adjudicatory bodies fall within Section 1782, the court decided that neither of the two underlying arbitral tribunals at issue in the case um, qualified. One was a plainly private commercial arbitration, a DIS or DIS arbitration, 
seated in Germany um, between parties um, regarding a, a sale of goods. Um, the other was a treaty arbitration initiated based on the bilateral investment treaty between Lithuania and Russia. And that was, um, that was an ad hoc uncitral arbitration, one of the four options set forth in the, uh, the BIT between Lithuania and Russia. So the court looked at both of those arbitrations, applied its statutory interpretation of foreign or international tribunal, and decided that neither the um, DIS arbitration nor the treaty arbitration um, fell within the language of 1782. Okay, and well, I think with all of that, I think what you're, what I might also be hearing from that explanation is there was sort of a, at least a, a filling or a clarification of the jurisdictional split, is that right? Yes, so some, some courts had held that, uh, had interpreted 1782 narrowly, uh, specifically the phrase foreign or international tribunal narrowly and had already decided that private arbitration seated abroad did not fall within it. Um, but there were several circuits that had found um, with differing rationales that um, some quasi-private international arbitrations or treaty arbitrations um, that were, for example, ad hoc uncitral arbitrations did fall within uh, section 1782. And um, you know, there, there was a, a clear divergence, lots of different opinions on this. And um, there was, you know, good, you know, there was good legislative history and um, sort of um, a long history of discussion of the evolution of section 1782 and its amendment that could support um, multiple readings of the phrase foreign or international tribunal. And so that's that's why really it was necessary for the Supreme Court to take a position on this more definitively. Sure. No, that makes sense. And well, look, going off of that, you know, we won't ask you here uh, whether you think the Supremes got it right or not, but we would love to hear your thoughts on maybe the backdrop and I guess just to touch more context on such a politically divided court. Um, it was unanimous decision. Why do you think that is? So it, it is definitely a politically divided court right now. Um, so you don't see many unanimous decisions, although it's become increasingly politically divided more recently. Um, in this case, I think was appropriate for a unanimous opinion because it was a relatively straightforward case dealing with statutory interpretation. Um, and in some respects, I think, given the sort of the politically divided nature of the court, it was a good opportunity for the court to issue a unanimous opinion. It turned purely on statutory interpretation and the statutory interpretation principles applied are, are pretty standard. So the court relied on legal di dictionary definitions and US, US definitions um, in sort of what I'll call lay, lay dictionaries. Um, and they analyzed the phrase foreign or international tribunal in, in context 
together with the legislative history and, and came to a, a very expected result. Most people expected that the court would, would find that a private arbitration seated outside the US uh, did not fall within 1782. Now, I think some people in the arbitration space might not agree with portions of the legislative history relied upon, might've put more weight on other portions of the legislative history or commentary about the, the sort of the history of the statute and its amendments, um, particularly 1964, when it was amended to broaden its scope um, to, to extend to more foreign bodies. Uh, the, the Supreme Court in the June 13 decision interpreted that as broadening the scope as to more foreign bodies imbued with governmental authority as opposed to you know, a more expansive reading, more foreign bodies generally, which could have reached uh, foreign private arbitrations. Um, so, so some have argued you know, differently than the, the court came down, but I think it was expected that the court would have a, a narrower reading of the broadening of section 1782 um, with the 1964 amendment. Okay. And well, given all these rapid reactions and things that we've heard buzzing around already, what do you think the impact of this decision is likely to be um, in practical terms? So everybody's talking about this. Um, in fact, everyone's talking about this at this very conference I'm attending. It was one of the first <laughs> agenda items uh, at the very first panel that started uh, earlier today. Um, Everybody seems to agree that the clarity was needed and that the decision is clear. Um, and so it's pretty accepted that private international arbitrations seated abroad are no longer um, something as to which 1782 um, can provide discovery assistance um, from non-parties in the US. Um, so that's going to, as a practical matter, I think that's going to reduce um, some of the discovery litigation under 1782 substantially, um, which, you know, I, I think that that could be a good thing um, because really no other country affords U.S. or, or other foreign parties um, the kind of discovery that, that the U.S. affords, you know, with respect to U.S. litigation. Um, and, and this was being used, you know, in the context of proceedings, you know, outside the U.S. Um, and the volume of 1782 cases was ever increasing um, in, and, um, and becoming burdensome on non-parties. Um, but as a practical matter, um, now parties know that a private arbitration abroad is not a basis for 1782 application in the U.S., Sure. And well, you know, obviously it's not, you know, the same as an award that might be challenged in conventional means. It's a Supreme Court decision. But do you think there's, you know, any sort of, you know, plucky plaintiffs out there that are thinking of a ways to challenge this um, award in the near term? You have any idea what might what that might look like if so? I think people are already trying to 
come up with ways to invoke 1782 with respect to private foreign arbitrations, um, but not do it directly based on the, the private foreign or uh, international tribunals seated abroad. Uh, I, I do believe that usually arbitrations, um, not usually, but you know, on occasion or, or you know, not infrequently, an arbitration has ancillary litigation and um, it may be that some of the ancillary judicial proceedings that may be connected to the arbitration would be the predicate for a 1782 application in the US as opposed to the foreign private arbitration itself. So okay. I see this, you know, sort of spawning what I'll call creative lawyering. Um, and I'm already hearing all sorts of creative ideas here at this conference. So stay tuned. I think that there'll be a lot to be said on this um, and there'll be more litigation, even though the opinion shuts down on its face, litigation you know, on 1782 with respect to foreign arbitration, private arbitrations, um, I think there's still gonna be quite a bit of creative litigating um, under 1782. Well, fair enough. Look, Dana, we appreciate you coming by the digital studio to, to keep us up to speed here. Um, and thank you for all the additional insights and um, additional sort of context. Where can listeners find uh, your writings or your, your work or get in touch? Sure. So I um, wrote a Clure arbitration blog article on the uh, 1782 Supreme Court case, the ZF automotive case. Uh, versus LuxShare, and that is on the Clua Arbitration blog, which is accessible to anyone free of charge. And um, I'm gonna add a link to that blog article soon to, to my website, my arbitrator website, under the publications page uh, pretty soon. So you can also visit my website in a week or so and, and find it there. Um, I actually have written a couple of articles recently uh, some of which are on 1782, the circuit cases that were um, leading up to this, uh, the Supreme Court decision um, are also accessible on my website, um, which is not shockingly called uh, mcgratharbitration.com. <laughs> so uh, that, that's one place you can go, but for the Supreme Court uh, case summary and analysis, um, that's on the Clue Arbitration blog. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Dana. And appreciate, again, your insights and uh, stay in touch. I will. I'm happy to do this. And it's great to catch up. That's it for Disputes Digest this week. It was a crazy week in international law, both abroad and for the Supreme Court. Um, SCOTUS is handing down some huge decisions and understand that more are to come over the next couple of weeks. So we'll be keeping a hawkish eye over it and ready to bring you more updates and reports. Don't forget to follow Tales of the Tribunal on LinkedIn and to check out the show. We have a great interview um, for this Juneteenth holiday that is being celebrated this week. It's a conversation with Regina Jones, the chief legal counsel at Baker Hughes. So that episode should already be live in your feeds if you just look up or down an inch on your podcasting feeds. But in any case, that's it for Tales of the Tribunal. If you have any feedback or comments for the show, drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com, and we will see you next week.
None of the views shared today or in any episode of Disputes Digest is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any organization or party for their inclusion on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees or organizations included appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearance should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.